Let me be perfectly explicit in this podcast. Okay, here it goes. It's Wednesday, May 22nd, 2019. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So right now, we're a few days after Joe Biden's kickoff rally in Philadelphia, and we're beginning to see the first polls that account for that speech and some of the backlash that the president visited upon him. And Joe Biden has a 20-point lead over his next closest rival, Bernie Sanders. Elizabeth Warren popping a little bit these days. So the lead is real. The lead is meaningful. The lead is certainly able to be overcome, and it's certainly a reflection of name recognition. But it also seems to be a response to Joe Biden's message, which is let all the other Democrats fight it out about fighting with Trump. Let them try to get to the left of Bernie Sanders on policy. I'm going to champion a less progressive set of ideas, and I'm not going to get into a nasty snit with the president. And that seems to be working a little bit. Biden had complete name recognition as the Democratic leader before he announced, but he gained about 10 points since he announced. Voters didn't remember him better. They seem to have liked him more. So now we're at a place where the political experts, whose consensus was, I think I'm fairly describing it as saying, they mostly thought that Biden's first day in his campaign would be his best day in his campaign. So most of these experts are saying that voters like Biden for the wrong reasons. In the New York Times, columnist Jill Filipovich asks, does anyone actually want Joe Biden to be president? Well, yes, 38% of Democrats surveyed say they support him in his quest for the presidency. But Filipovich's point is that his candidacy is chimerical or chimerical based on a shared incorrect assumption about Biden. It's that everyone believes that everyone else believes that he's the most electable. And if we only stop believing, as I wish Journey had said, then Joe Biden wouldn't be electable. Some of this is a little true because the thing that would occasion a decrease in the perception of Biden's electability would be a mistake or a gaffe. And he has been known to make them, especially in the era when gaffes counted as harmful and unpresidential. So if he were to misstep, he would go down in the polls, but he'd go down in the polls because he'd be less appealing and someone who's less appealing would be less likely to get elected because he'd have less appeal. There is a grand circularity to much of the Filipovich argument. It's actually a perception of a perception of a perception. She perceives the voters as perceiving that other voters would vote for him. But her perceptions rest on shaky premises, encapsulated in the very first sentence of her piece. The most important requirement for the Democratic Party's presidential nominee, electability. It matters more, we keep hearing, than nominating a candidate who has good policies. Now, I don't keep hearing that. I don't think I've ever heard that. Polls don't say that. Quinnipiac did poll the Democratic elector, and yeah, Biden was number one, 38% of the vote. 56% of the voters surveyed said that Biden has the best chance of beating Donald Trump, followed by Bernie Sanders at 12%. But think about what that means. That means there are a whole lot of Democrats who are saying, yes, we do think Biden's the most electable, but we're still not supporting him. And it's also important that when these voters were asked who has the best policy ideas, Biden was first at 23%, with Warren second at 19%. The bottom line is that most Democrats who support Biden do think he's most electable, and that also may be true, but they also think he has the best ideas, which I guess also we got to say may be true. 
Filipovich described Joe Biden as Joe Biden, an older white man tightly associated with sexual harassment and racism. She clearly does not like him. And this is a shared trait among the many columnists who are offering arguments against his perceived electability. Tactically, it makes sense to dirty up this candidate. If you weaken his standing, you weaken his status as electable. You weaken him as a front runner. And then maybe you get a candidate you like better. Maybe that's more the job of a political operative than a political analyst. But you know what? Politics ain't Nerf ball. By the way, the expression used to be politics ain't beanbag. But I don't know. Beanbags aren't soft and fun. People, plenty of protesters get shot at with a beanbag gun. Let's change it to Nerf. Other examples of flawed thinking in dismissing Biden's electability include this Washington Post Mark A. Thiessen headline, Trouble Ahead for Biden's Campaign Because of Anita Hill. Here is a sentence in the article. The more Biden's primary lead expands, the more desperate his Democratic opponents will be to bring him down. So the premise is, there is trouble because his lead is expanding. Trouble is defined as success in the polls. Is the point that if Joe Biden just played possum and nestled in there at second or third, he'd be better off? I read the article. That's not the point. It's just like Filipovich saying, as she does in the article, the Democratic Party of 2019 does not look much like Joe Biden. Well, they look like people who say they prefer to vote for Joe Biden. That is true. Filipovich goes on for a while to point out that whites and men are on the wane in this country, or at least uh, as far as men go, a minority of the electorate, and female and non-white, that's ascendant demographically. Yet other than white and female, the number one biggest group of Democratic voters is white and male, not by percentage, just the biggest group, the look-like criteria. It would be weird, and I'm going to say wrong, for the New York Times to argue that Democrats should only nominate Elizabeth Warren or Amy Klobuchar or Kirsten Gillibrand because they are the ones who most look like the party. If it's true that Joe Biden isn't really electable because he looks less like the Democratic Party, then it would be more true to sub out the name Joe Biden and sub in the name Cory Booker or Kamala Harris. But what a horrible argument that would be. Most of the article, the Filipovich article I'm talking about, points to the success of female candidates and candidates of color in the midterms and argues that, see, don't you see, this means white and male shouldn't have a psychological hold on our idea of who should be president. That is true. And the proof that it doesn't have this hold is that the last three elections, Democrats did not nominate a white male as their candidate. It is an odd argument that Democrats need to be convinced that they don't have to nominate a white man. They know this. They haven't nominated a white man. So much time is spent establishing that Democrats have sent women and minorities to power in Washington as proof that Democrats should stop believing that women and minorities can't be sent to power in Washington. The Democrats know this. Turns out your conclusion is your premise. A better article asking essentially the same questions was written by Michelle Goldberg and at least dispensed with arguing against the straw man that Joe Biden's popularity rests only in the perception of individual voters of the wider electorate. She writes, in contemporary politics, the quest to find an electable candidate hasn't resulted in candidates that actually win. Voters don't do themselves any favors when they try to think like pundits. Cosign. You know who else doesn't do themselves or us a great amount of favors when they try to think like pundits? Pundits. I have read 40 of these Joe Biden electability is bullshit articles. 
There was Vanity Fair's Joe Biden electability argument is how Democrats lose elections. There is the New Republic's Democrats have created an electability monster. There was Peter Beinhart in The Atlantic. Joe Biden's electability is a myth. Wait, if it's a myth, that means he's just unelectable? Wrong. Here is the myth. That whenever Democrats veer toward electability, they lose. Obama is always pointed to as an exemplar of this trend. Oh, that's when the Democrats voted with their hearts, not their heads. Wrong. Look at the polls. After Obama won in a couple primaries, he passed Hillary Clinton in the polls of who was the most electable in the general election. Here is the truth. If you win, you are perceived as a winner. And if Democrats vote on who they want to be president, that person will make the best candidate for the presidency. In writing off Biden's electability or ascribing to voters the idea that they primarily are favoring Biden because of electability, we are playing the same losing game as warning us that electability is all Joe Biden has going for him. So does anyone actually want Joe Biden to be president? Not many people who are writing these kind of broadsides against Joe Biden's electability, but yes, plenty of people who actually want to elect Joe Biden. On the show today, I spiel about Michael Cohen and the pre-pardon pardon, which isn't a thing, and it also isn't a scandal, but I can't believe we're still saying this. Should be. But first, with a rash of states passing extremely restrictive abortion laws, the issue has come to the fore. For many women, and the women guarding the rights of women, it never receded. The president of Planned Parenthood is up next to talk about this moment in the abortion battles. Abortion rights in America are under assault in a way that is more tangible than has seemed for really well over a decade. Joining me now is the president of the Planned Parenthood Federation, Lena Wen. Hello. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Wen. Hi. Nice to talk to you, Mike. I know these are dire times for anyone who wants to preserve the right to abortion, but in a way, is it possible that these states, Missouri, Mississippi, Georgia, Alabama, are doing a favor to the pro-choice side in that they're rallying attention and really outrage. Well, I am a doctor and I also head up a national healthcare organization. And my job is to take care of women and patients in this country. I've been focused on the devastating impact that these bans will have on women's health and on the public's health. This is what's happening. The states that you just mentioned already have some of the worst health outcomes when it comes to women's health. Alabama has the highest rate of cervical cancer in the country. Georgia has the second highest maternal mortality rate. A pregnant woman in Georgia is 10 times more likely to die in childbirth than a pregnant woman in California. Missouri is facing a syphilis outbreak with the highest rate of congenital syphilis, babies born with the effects of syphilis in nearly two decades. Instead of trying to improve health, what these politicians are doing is to further restrict access to health care, affecting the most vulnerable. And you're right. These bans that we've seen are so extreme. It is now crystal clear to the American people, anyone who is wondering what Trump's true intention is, I think they can stop wondering now. You cited the statistic that Georgia has roughly 10 times the maternal deaths as California. And while that's true, it's also true that New Jersey 
has double the maternal deaths of Alabama. And uh, I know these statistics pretty well, and I've done reporting and interviews about them, and there's not as close a correlation, although there is some correlation, between restrictive uh, abortion laws and bad maternal outcomes. But what is true, and I really want to ask you about this, because you are a California-raised doctor, what is true is it seems like California has all but solved or taken serious strides to solving the problem of maternal deaths during childbirth in ways other states haven't. Why can't, well, a lot of questions that start with why can't, why can't other states do this? Why isn't this a bigger issue? You know, what's stopping if we really care about the health of mothers and if we really care about women having babies, why isn't this a national concern? That's exactly the right question to be asking. And I think the answer is that until now, we have not been talking about valuing women's lives. For so long, we focused on the issue of infant mortality. And this is an important area to focus on. My last role was as the health commissioner for the city of Baltimore. And I led a program together with over 150 public and private partners in the city that resulted in reducing the infant mortality in our city by almost 40% in seven years. That cut the disparity between black and white infant mortality in our city by over 50%. And these deaths are preventable and doing more to close the gap of disparities and improve health for children is absolutely essential. But we also have to be thinking about maternal mortality and more broadly about women's health because women are not just pregnant. Women are not just vessels. The rates in this country are shocking. We're the only industrialized country where the maternal mortality rate is increasing and actually is quite dramatically increasing. Well, we have to have a discussion about this, and we have to value women, and we have to know the statistics. But I also think that we have to realize there is out there of the biggest state in the country who has had a significant, if not solution, made significant inroads. And so as much as it's important to look at the question, don't you think we should be pointing to the solution, the at least partial solution and saying, let's do what they did? Why is that not going on? You're absolutely right. We should be doing that. And California has done a lot when it comes to um, maternal mortality review and implementing best practices. And here's what else they're doing. They are heavily investing in reproductive health education and services. Comprehensive reproductive health education in schools that's evidence-based is important to empower teens and young people to make the best decisions for themselves. Um, the budget, I believe, coming out of the governor's office, Governor Newsom's office, has an $100 million additional investment in reproductive health care and meeting people where they are with the services that they need. And I think we need to look at that. Uh, why shouldn't states all around the country be providing more health care, not less. This is actually what the people want. Why do you think public opinion on abortion rights, which, to be clear, the public favors abortion rights, but not by a huge margin and not by a margin that's changed so much over the last few decades? Why hasn't public opinion on abortion rights changed in, let's say, more liberalized as it has on gay rights or many aspects of civil rights like anti-miscegenation laws? Well, when I look at our polling, we find that the support for Roe versus Wade as the law of the land is at an all-time high. It's at 73 percent. 
And the majority of Republicans, 52% of Republicans, support Roe. There is not one state in the country where the majority support overturning Roe. And the most recent data about these extreme bans in Alabama show that they are deeply, deeply unpopular. We also know that most people know and love someone who has had abortion care, and people understand the idea of the government making personal medical decisions for patients is deeply unpopular. And so, actually, you know, we didn't want for abortion care, reproductive health care to be in the political crosshairs. But now that Trump has decided that this is what he wants to focus on, we say bring it on. Are any of the Democratic candidates coming up short in their stances towards abortion? Actually, in this week in particular, but in general, even before this momentum that swept this, the country culminating in the day of action yesterday, even before this, we saw um, our 2020 candidates stand up strongly in favor of reproductive rights. Many of them are longtime champions for our issues, um, for women in this country, for all people in this country. And this week, we have seen so many of them come out with new policy proposals to further protect Roe versus Wade, which, by the way, I wish that we wouldn't have to do because Roe has been settled law for almost 50 years. And it's my expectation as the president of the Planned Parenthood Action Fund that all of our 2020 candidates will be standing up to affirm that abortion care is health care, that health care is a fundamental human right, and that all people must have um, freedom and control over their own bodies without political interference. On Meet the Press, Chuck Todd asked Senator Sanders uh, this. Are you at all concerned, though, about this idea that people may try to uh, worry about the sex of a child or, or essentially... Are those type of restrictions on abortion uh, something you're open to? And uh, the senator seemed caught off guard and said, well, I'd have to think about it. Is that a legitimate question? And what would you have liked his answer to have been? This is a manufactured crisis. These are these things that our antis are raising are not in any way based in medicine or reality. These questions are being raised to cover up for what's actually happening, which is this unprecedented and coordinated attack on women's health care. Look, we should be treating— So you're saying abortion. in reality no one is using sex selection as a reason for abortion? And that is not what is happening around the country. That is not what's at stake here. What's at stake here is that women will die. Before Roe was, was passed— Thousands of women died every year because they did not have access to safe legal abortions. And as a physician, as a public health leader, I just cannot stand for that. And Planned Parenthood cannot stand for that, which is why we continue to stress that this is an existential fight. I've treated women who could not access abortion in time and took matters into their own hands and died as a consequence. So there was this, I think, successful rhetorical formulation that Bill Clinton once put forward that abortion should be safe, legal, and rare. Stipulating that was an effective message. Do you think it is in any way a flawed message? We have to be clear that abortion care is health care. Abortion is a safe, standard medical procedure that one in four women will undergo in our lifetimes. 
rare has the connotation that it is something to be ashamed of, and that there is some guilt and shame to be associated with this. And we in Planned Parenthood just will always stand with women. We will always reject any language and messaging that, advertently or inadvertently, will stigmatize shame and judge women. My job as a doctor is to trust women, to trust my patients, to empower my patients to make the best decisions for their health. I believe in providing the full range of reproductive health care because that's good medicine. We believe in sex education that's comprehensive, that's evidence-based. We believe in affordable birth control, which, by the way, I can't believe it's 2019 and we're still arguing about birth control, which also is wildly popular, um, just in case the Trump administration um, is willing to reconsider their stances on birth control. But we also believe in having the full range of reproductive health care because that's what our patients need. That's good medical care. Yes, uh, you're right about the stigmatizing portion because it seems to say, well, you shouldn't want an unwanted pregnancy. Yes, that's what the word unwanted is doing in that sentence. Well, what I can say is we, as Planned Parenthood, will always fight for every person to make the best decisions for their health. There are 420 laws, over 420 laws passed in the last seven years that directly restrict abortion care in some way, forced waiting periods, medically unnecessary ultrasounds, just things that we would never consider happening to any other aspect of medicine. And we need to keep in mind that legalizing abortion did not create the need for it. Um, And banning abortion will not stop abortion, but it will stop safe legal abortion. And women will die. Dr. Lena Wen is the president of the Planned Parenthood Federation of America. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. I just want to catch you up in case you missed it. This revelation about Michael Cohen. Quoting the New York Times, Mr. Cohen's explosive claims about possible pardons in exchange for loyalty comport with earlier revelations that lawyers for Mr. Trump raised the prospect of pardons in 2017 with lawyers of two other former advisors tied up in the case. Explosive. They are explosive claims. Hmm. Are they explosive right now? These claims have been out there for two days. They seem more like a controlled explosion or one handled by a robot with a thick blanket. Like this guy. Number five alive. I don't know if they're explosive because they seem to have had little to no impact. In fact, it's like we're back in the pre-Muller probe era where we're supposed to say, well, this does not bode well for Donald Trump's longevity. I bet that if you just triangulate this info with all the other info, it will spell doom for the president. Of course, we've stopped saying that and thinking that because it didn't. I still think it's important, if only for our own sanity, and maybe to teach the, I don't know, 11 to 23 voters left in America that are still persuadable that it is bad when the president lies to them, because he has been lying constantly. So as predicate, I'm now going to read from some of the transcript of the House Committee's interview with Michael Cohen. Question, who did you speak to about pardons? Answer, Jay Sekulow. 
How many times did you speak to Jay Sekulow about pardons? Answer, quite a few. In what time period? Around the time of this investigation and post. Before you testified? Answer, yes. Before and after? Before and after? Answer, yes. Okay. So now, with that in mind, let us play this Q&A, July 2017, ABC's This Week, hosted then by Jonathan Carl, interviewing Jay Sekulow. Okay, one last question. Senator Warner says that he is concerned that the president will issue pardons to the key figures in this investigation. Will the president rule out giving pardons to people like Michael Flynn, Paul Manafort, uh, any others that are in this investigation? I have not had the conversation with the president about any of that, and I wouldn't share it if I did because it would be attorney-client privilege. But I've not had that conversation with uh, the president on that and what he could or could not do. He can pardon individuals. Of course, that's because the founders of our country put that in the United States Constitution, the power to pardon. But I have not had those conversations, so I couldn't speculate on that. So pardoning the key figures in this investigation is not off the table? It's something he might do. I just told you. I've not had a – well, no, no, I can't say that. The president told me. Uh, in conversations that I've had with him about a variety of issues. We've talked, but we've not talked about pardoning individuals in this at all. So you're asking me to speculate on something I cannot speculate on. Aha. So looking back, the proper follow-up wouldn't have been focusing on the, so it's on the table, it's not off the table. That distinction didn't matter. It would have been something like, okay, so you didn't have conversations with the president, but did you have conversations with anyone being investigated? And the answer would have probably been, well, it's not my job to divulge to you what I've had, blah, blah, blah. But still, we would have known the answer is yes. Back to the transcript with Michael Cohen. This was interesting. Question. Did Jay Sekulow tell you that the president was considering giving you a pardon? Answer. That's not the way he stated it. But we had a conversation, one at least, I believe it may have been, and I'm not 100% certain of the exact date that occurred, but the concept of a pre-pardon was discussed. Yes. Okay. So if you said it's not exactly how he said it, what do you remember him saying about the idea of you getting a pardon? Cohen answer. Well, it wasn't just me. It was globally in order to, I guess, shut down, you know, this investigation. And I said to him, you know, well, well, you know, there's always the possibility of a pre-pardon in question. Let's take your time because it's important for us to understand not just the gist, bing, of the conversation, but who said what exactly, all right? So you mentioned something called a global pardon. Did he use that term? No. Okay. What do you mean by a global pardon? Okay. That in order to shut down this whole thing, this is how they were potentially going to do it and everybody would just get a pardon and said, well, it wouldn't be a pardon, it would be a pre-pardon, because nobody's been charged yet. So it ultimately just became, that's not really something that could be accomplished, because then we'd have the right, again, to ask you questions, everyone on the team. I love this, I love this. A pardon is absolution. This is immunization, being dipped in the river sticks. But as Cohen quickly figured out, his Achilles heel, his Cohenic heel, would exist. Because if you've been pardoned, then you can't take the fifth. In this case, number five is not alive. If you've been pre-pardoned, you can't then say, I can't incriminate myself because that's already been removed off the table. In other words, a pre-pardon, not a thing, would have been the worst legal strategy the Trump team could have pursued. I do not know what to say about all this. 
Luckily for us, President Trump always knows what to say. This was from the White House today. I don't do cover-ups. Well, oh, no, no, no. I don't mean well. I mean, well, you don't do cover-ups. Well, although this one seems to be working. So here's what happened. The restaurant was torched. We have footage of the arsonists who worked for the restaurant owner setting the fire. We have testimony of a main arsonist saying the restaurant owner put him up to it. We have an arson investigator documenting over and over again how the restaurateur tried to make the footage go away and the testimony disappear. But it turns out that the potential jury, they all had a small piece of the fire insurance policy. They get a taste and therefore it all goes away. It never gets brought to trial. I guess technically Jay Sekulow isn't doing a cover-up. I mean, we can't prove that he lied to Jonathan Carl. I guess Michael Cohen isn't covering up either because he's the arsonist. He sang and he's doing time. And maybe you can even say Trump isn't covering up because what's the cover-up? It's all out there. I just documented it for you all over the news in so many different ways. This is what they're documenting over and over and over again. But you know who is doing a cover-up? It is the Republican-controlled Senate, who we know won't convict. They got enough to get their beaks wet, so now they keep their powder dry. That is the real reason why these charges aren't explosive. There is a spark, but you also need oxygen. And the lack of that is what's keeping this potential ball of flames from going up in the first place. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader. When kept in their original packaging and away from sunlight and moisture, they are considered the most collectible. TJ Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcast. She finds new podcasters to be the most correctable. The gist. I tell Michelle that my bon mots are at their most delectable and conversationally the most injectable, bordering on undetectable. That line of argument has proved rejectable. Oomperu, dapperu, dupperu, and thanks for listening.